uh, the growth of our fellowship here at Prism Church and the, uh, the recent miraculous provision of this facility for us to call home uh, is an amazing thing given where I was six years ago this month. I was embroiled in a church conflict that I was ill-equipped to oversee here in Pasadena, 2,000 miles from my friends and the church that I had planted there. The perfect storm of midlife, career failure, anxiety-produced insomnia, chemical depression, which I have battled for years, and loneliness brought me literally to a breaking point. Uh, God used it to pry from my hands the idol of self-sufficiency and pride, which had built up over a string of ministry successes. However, among all of those conditions that led me to the verge of a breakdown, the greatest among them was the feelings I had of being alone. Alone in my failure. Alone in my fears. Alone in my experience. In part, they were my own perceptions. They weren't real, but that's how I felt. And in some part, they were part of the method of operation that I had bought into. That as a Christian leader, a pastor, I was to keep these things to myself. That I really wasn't allowed to live as a broken person in front of you, working my way through the world. And some of the people that I experienced during that tough season six years ago uh, exacerbated that sense in me by saying, because I was somebody who wrestled with his own inner depression, that I shouldn't even be in ministry in the first place. I also had become convinced that if you're going to be a successful pastor, which of course in and of itself is an entirely different sermon because it's like what in the world does that even mean and why in the world would you even want to be successful as the world terms it? What does it mean to be successful another week? Thank you very much. But it really brought me to a place of having to face the reality that I had always presented my best side to everybody. And that's sort of what we do in the world. I don't know if you watch or watched, you can't miss them, they're on reruns on TV all the time, but The Office was, you know, a very popular show. And one of my favorite scenes from The Office was when Michael was interviewing for a job in New York City, and they asked him his weakness, his greatest weakness, and it was, you know, I care too much. Or it was kind of sort of, you know, people love me too much. It was, it was, and that's really sort of what you'd hear from people in churches of all places. They'd say, what do you struggle with? They'd be like, I struggle with not caring enough about people. It's like, that's how bad you are? You, you and I aren't going to get along at all. Because if that's the depths of your depravity, you and I are on completely different planes of existence. And I, over time, had just felt like I was leading a double life. And I don't mean to tell you, because you know, there are some people, either they're listening because we now have an internationally broadcasting website that makes you sound like your church is huge, even if there are only 70 people there. Uh, I just want to make sure everybody understands. We're not talking about anything that would disqualify me from being an elder, if that's your big concern, or something that would make you think I've got something really crazy and secretive going on in my life. I'm just talking about the ability to tell you, I don't feel very good about myself right now. I'm talking about the most basic sort of laying out my life in front of people. And today as we continue this new series, as we're going to 
through the entire year of 2015 in the letter of the second, to the second Corinthians, we're going to take another great look at how God brings comfort to our lives. Last week, Brooks shared from the preceding verses how comfort is both comprehensive and communal in nature because of Jesus. But today I want to look at comfort from the standpoint of the means God has given us within our church to bring about comfort. Is your soul secretly in pain? Do you feel alone? Do you feel somewhat tormented? Well, there's something in all of us that says, I can't risk putting this out in front of everybody and be judged. I have to have some elbow room to feel free. I wrote a little book called Three Tips for Campus Survival, and one of the things that a lot of Christian kids will discover when they go off to a state university and they get away from their Christian school or their homeschool association or their Christian family or whatever is they'll get to a state university context and they'll start drinking with their friends and one night in a state of inebriation, they'll start sharing all sorts of stuff that they've never been able to share before and nobody says a word and there's a sense of liberation. They go, people have accepted me. Now, again, a second sermon for another day because it's not real acceptance. They discover in time that people are as judgmental and harsh in the real world as they would be in the church, but there's something inside of them that goes, at least initially, my friends don't know me this well. The people from my church don't know me this well. Nobody knows me. And the question is why? Because it seems that that type of secretive, I'm not really going to tell you what's going on in my life, belies a real knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you want comfort from him, we're going to all have to crash through that barrier of insecurity because if we're going to get community comfort, if we're going to get it within the context of relationships, it's not going to come on the surface. It's going to come through a couple of means. And so this is what I'll talk with you about today. The two means of community comfort actually being imparted to one another by Christ's power. And the first is this. Community comfort comes through confession. Community comfort comes through confession. Verse 8 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we'd received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely on, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. There is in this text today, uh, a heated debate among some theologians who interpret the passage, and they're trying to discover what is it that Paul is talking about that is his burden that made him despair of life. And so actually, theological nerds sit around and fight about, well, it's an illness that Paul continuously battled over, or this person will say, well, it's, it's really just persecution, or this person will say, it's really the inner turmoil he's battled in his relationship with the Corinthians, and while intellectually that's a lot of fun, if that's your thing, I would say the thing that I'm most amazed at is not what Paul is sharing. I'm, I'm amazed that he, as the leader of the Christian church in the first century, is so publicly sharing deep pain with everybody. Why? Because this is seemingly absent today from Christian leadership. 
I have been a Christian over 30 years now, and I can count on two fingers the number of pastors I have heard get up in front of people and say, I'm really struggling with an area of sin in my life, or I'm really struggling with an area of of deep fear in my life. Two in over three decades. And the strange thing about that is that they all, and I'm talking about other people in the world, they talk about it as if it's not supposed to exist in pastors, but we almost always in Christian leaders find out about it some way. I mean, these are people, these, I'm telling you, two people who've confessed it before it ended up in the newspaper. I mean, I've seen plenty of 2020 specials on corrupt pastors. You turn on the TV and you can get something about a corrupt minister. I'm talking about somebody who before the crud hits the fan actually gets up in front of the church and says, guys, I'm having a really difficult time not being worried about the financial state of our church. And sometimes that'll make me a little punchy. And so forgive me as your pastor for being afraid. I mean, really, do you expect the minister at your church? And if you're here for the first time, you're like, yeah, and we're leaving right after. Thank you. Um, do, you, do, you do you really expect your pastor to, to be perfect? Well, this is what I expected. Imagine the conflict within me when I know that's not to be true. Imagine the conflict of my poor wife who's over there in the corner going, I knew it was true from the beginning. But deep down inside, you're like, if they find out about me, I'm going to be a fraud. This is simply not the pattern of the great Apostle Paul. In the midst of spiritual struggle with pain and sin like the rest of us, he writes two-thirds of the New Testament. He pioneers the mission to the Gentiles and then feels that for real comfort, the people of Corinth, who he'd been in real, a real tussle with, I mean a real substantial theological and moral disagreement so much so that he told them he wasn't going to visit them he was afraid to visit them because he was afraid and how direct and harsh he was going to have to be that it was going to crush them his success he said was going to come by revealing something about himself that was going to disarm people and realize okay he's just one of us and in so doing what did Paul did was he directed everybody and pointed them to Christ. All throughout the New Testament and all of Paul's letters you see this type of self-effacing disclosure of his own feelings and emotions and fears and it's ultra consistent with the Psalms which do nothing but talk about how mad people are about what God is doing in their life or how afraid they are or how disillusioned they are with the people of the church. You don't see them. This is in the Bible. So why is it that we, historically, have been people that have been reluctant and afraid to live this way? I think it's a truncated understanding of just how okay we are with God and Christ. Listen to Paul. He battles with his sinful nature. He writes in Romans chapter 7, just to give you an idea that I'm not making this stuff up. This is Paul in Romans 7. For I know, he's talking about his own sinful struggle. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who did it, but the sin that dwells in me. So I find to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see my members... I see in my members another law, 
waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. What a wretched man I am who will deliver me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is not a post, this is not a pre-conversion, Paul, as some would have you think. That is a silly and horrible interpretation of this passage. This is Paul talking about what happened several years before when he was a Jew and really liked to obey God. He didn't. He was killing Christians. This is a Christian Paul saying this is the battle that's waging in me. He felt comfortable enough to talk about it openly. Why? Well, A, he had said, I know in my heart I want to do what's right. So there is that check for all of us. I mean, you could say I'm a Christian and not really care whether or not you're being disobedient, and that might tell you you're not really a Christian. But at the same time, he's saying, I am troubled by this, this battle that's raging within me. What do I do? His answer is, thanks be to Jesus. It's a correct understanding of the gospel. We have been made right in God's sight right now. If you're a believer, he lives in you. You're holy in his sight. That isn't going to happen when you stop doing whatever it is you're doing or start doing whatever it is you think you need to start doing. You're holy in his sight, immediamente, as they say in the fine state of Southern California. I'm telling you, friends, now is the time to enjoy being at peace with God. And it's in that place of comfort, security, that Paul's able to say, I get it. The battle's awful. It's struggle. It's terrible. It's exhausting. I'm a wretched person. At times, I'm losing my grip. Look at Paul's battle in loneliness. He writes to Timothy, his disciple, the second letter to Timothy in chapter 4, verses 14 through 17. This is stuff, too, that Paul knew these letters were going to get circulated. So this isn't personal correspondence. Paul's plenty aware that everything he writes now is a matter of record. Now, he may not have known that a couple thousand years later, 70 or so people would be sitting in a little chapel in Pasadena, California, reading his letter. But trust me, in his context, he knew what he was saying was going to become an issue because everything he said became an issue. Even in Corinth, in the context of today's passage, they were taking and twisting and turning, and and it was this nasty, ugly thing that nobody really wants to be a part of. So Paul writes to Timothy knowing that everybody's going to hear what he's saying, and listen to what he says. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. you got to be thinking if you're Alexander the coppersmith, this is really bad fortune. <laughs> you know, I mean, to have your name like for eternity be scribed in as the guy who did Paul a hard time, wow. Poor choices will really get the consequences going the way they, you don't want them to. Anyway, The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might fully be proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Again, you hear in Paul, God did this for a reason. He was able to have peace to see that even in the disappointment of having people let him down, that God was getting him to, to draw more closely to Jesus. You and I and our difficulties and challenges and lonelinesses, these things are designed to draw us closer to him because in the absence of them, I can tell you quite frankly that I don't do so well when everything's going so well. I tend to, as Paul would say he does in both this passage and today's passage, rely on myself. When things are going really well, 
when the ministry's cooking with gas, when people are singing your praises, in my case, that's what happened in Florida anyway, I found myself saying, I got this. Maybe you know the feeling in your line of work, in your home, in your parenting of your children. Maybe things went well and you thought, I got this. And then all of a sudden you had that one kid who went, eh, I'm not going to listen to you ever. (laughs) And then you realize, gosh, I guess I don't have this. See, friends, these things are all designed to get us to depend on him. But my point again today is, we're not going to get anything valuable out of Christian community. These wonderful community groups uh, we have are going to be valuable proportional to our confession of what's really going on in our lives. To the degree you have to hold back and guard yourself and protect yourself, that time with a bunch of Christians is going to be minimally effective but it requires that you and I would know that God's already made us okay with him. And you have to be secure enough in Christ to say, I really don't need your approval. Thank you very much. I have God's approval. At the same time, in talking to each other, freely talking of our battles, we discover in real, genuine Christian community other people who are there, and we are empowered. Now all of a sudden we have the will to fight, something we thought we had lost. And it's all because somebody said, I totally get where you are. I've, I've been there. I know what you're going through. I'm not pretending that I, that I know what you're going through. I may be going through it right now. Dr. Crabb, who I quoted a couple of months ago, so if you're a podcast follower, you'll say, does this guy ever get other resources other than Dr. Crabb? I do, but this is so rich and so encouraging to me. In the, his book, The Safest Place on Earth, he writes... It is our weakness, not our competence, that moves others. Our sorrows, not our blessings, that break down the barriers of fear and shame that keep us apart. Our admitted failures, not our paraded successes, that bind us together in hope. Without a safe community, we will not own our brokenness. We will not provide others with the safety they need to own theirs. Community will be a competitive, demanding place where we feel the pressure to demonstrate that God has done more work in our lives than he has. Carolyn has a brother. She has two, actually, but the one she's closest to is just a a year and a half, a grade ahead of her in school, that kind of thing. And his name is Kurt. And Kurt is a really a strong guy. I mean, he was kind of a daredevil as a young man. He flew planes, and he was a downhill skier, almost killed himself once doing that. He's a scrappy little guy from Jersey, and so, you know, if you talk to him in a way that showed disrespect to him, he might throw down with you. I mean, he's a man's man. All right, I've always kind of respected him, and at the same time, you know, I've recognized that I'm a lot like him in some ways, and in some ways not so much, but I can say at this very moment, he has moved to third place on the list of people who've made my wife cry the most times. And uh, I'm in second now. My son is in first place. And, and I have to tell you, I'm really happy to have not won this contest. You know, I'm like calling Nick all the time going, good job, man. You're at the top of the list. Not me anymore. As long as it isn't me, I'm okay. I'm actually getting better for those of you who are wondering. But needless to say, my brother-in-law, Kurt, uh, I've always admired his success in business his, his entrepreneurial spirit. And six years ago this month, he called me, which is not a frequent thing for brothers-in-laws from 2,000 miles apart to call, but he called me to share with me his story of how years, a couple years earlier, unbeknownst to many, uh, he'd had a breakdown. 
And he began to tell me about it. And as he told me about it and shared with me, I didn't see him as weaker. I thought, man, this guy's really amazing. I mean, I, at, the, at the time where I ironically thought if he, you know, if I tell my real stuff to this guy, he's going to think less of me. As he told me his stuff, I found myself admiring him and going, wow, not only are you a really successful guy, but you're really humble too. I found myself actually enjoying him more, and it's opened up a dimension of our relationship that I never imagined would take place. This is what God's calling us to. You see, one of the means that comfort is going to flow into your life through community, one of those means is the confession of other people. And as Brooks said so ably when he was announcing community groups, community groups isn't just about you. Others need to hear your story. Others need to hear where you're broken. They don't need you to be successful. They need to know where you're weak. One of the things we do in community groups is pray, and that's really the second means of communal comfort. The first is confession. The second is community comfort being powered by prayer. It's It comes through confession, but it's really powered by prayer. And you can see this in the passage in verse 10 and 11. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we've set our hope that he will deliver us again. You must also help us by prayer so that many will give thanks to our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. A a critical component of church life is our corporate times of prayer. You have to look at this text and see something really remarkable. In two verses, the word us appears five times. This is not something we're talking about that happens you in your cubicle, in your closet, all by yourself. There is a time and a place for you praying by yourself. As a matter of fact, it's a critical means of grace for you to enjoy the peace of God and to be able to process what's going on in your world in a way that would honor Christ and you'd actually enjoy it. I can't make it without personal time with God in prayer on a daily basis. It isn't a matter of me being a really holy, righteous guy. Quite the contrary. Uh, the production of a prayer life is something that has happened in my life in the last six years. As I come face to face with the concrete floor in my home and realize my life is coming undone and I have no control of it, it will jumpstart your prayer life. And it has, because uh, the healing process has been years in, in making, and it has forged a prayer life. And I tell you that not to tell you, and you should be like me and daily have times with God. I mean, that's not that impressive. I'm telling you, I'm so naturally broken that unless I glue myself to God in prayer, I don't see the world the way I'm supposed to see it. It is the lens to my life glasses that helps me see, okay, somebody doesn't like me very much. How do I process that? All right, this is an enormous disappointment. How do I process that? If I don't have that daily lens of prayer and the scriptures, man, it is like not having my glasses on. I can't see clearly further than two feet in front of my face. And and misinterpreting the information, I'll do all sorts of goofy stuff to harm myself and others. Prayer, though, in terms of comfort, one of the ways it happens is you being involved with others praying. Us. Help us by your prayers. And then the other word you see at least a couple times in this passage is the word many. So the, the, the supposition in Paul's life is that many people are praying for us, and this actually helps us. See, it's all communal. It's all about 
fellowship through prayer. One of the things we do in our community groups, and every now and again I'll get somebody, and it's usually somebody from my generation, a baby, I'm like barely in the boomer, sort of in between the next generation, but I'm a long way from the millennial generation, I'll tell you that much. My, my peers from the uh, boomer generation, well, what are you doing in your community groups? What are you discipling? How are you teaching? What is the structure you're using? What is the, and it's like, well, it's not quite, that detail is a little more organic than that. One of the things that's most important to community groups in this generation is this time of prayer where you actually share the real stuff going on in your life. And then you actually pray together. And then you actually, within that community group, as we do here, text and email each other. And one day, if I have my way, we're going to have our own little Prism Prayer app just for us. And we're going to be able to shoot little prayer announcements to our small group and to other people in our lives. And we're praying for each other. That's one of the ways we get to know each other. I mean, really know each other. One of the ways we don't feel all alone in this world is having others know what's going on in our lives. James, the brother of Jesus, says as much in his letter, chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, he says this to the church. Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. See, there's a, there's a direct connection between real confession to one another and real prayer because real confession will compel you to take someone to prayer. We are, I'm not a priest, I was raised Catholic, but what you have to see me as is a pastor is somebody that will shepherd you to the one who can actually forgive you. We, we do that with each other. You don't have to have an ecclesiastical title to make that work. You're supposed to embrace, and you know, the safety of the confessional in the Catholic Church is a beautiful picture of how relationships are supposed to be with us. Never do you hear a Catholic priest on the other side of the little thing go, except in movies like comedies, you know, go, whoa, that's a big sin. You should stop doing that. They got that component of it right, but you'll notice that they've created this kind of this veil they don't see who you are. You don't see who they are. It's kind of this way of protecting your anonymity. In the Christian world, it's supposed to be unveiled. It's supposed to be you and me telling each other, this is going bad for me. And you going, really sorry. Let's pray about that together. Let's go to the Father together. Let me help you. Let me usher you. Let us two broken people go and talk to the Lord about what's going on in our lives. This is what James is saying. Through prayer, we learn very naturally about each other's pain and suffering. And you see, for many of us, only our pride is keeping us from living this way. We don't want anybody to know that we're this broken. And the pastors and leaders of the evangelical Christian church in America are to blame for a lot of it. As one of them, I can tell you, we facilitate this garbage by telling you we got our stuff together because we want you to think we're super prophet. We want you to think our mega church is really cooking with gas. We want you to buy our books or we want you to listen to our podcast 
And then only when the garbage hits the fan and the internet's filled with information about what a terrible pastor you are does everybody go, I didn't realize he was that bad. Well, it's because he kept it from you. She kept it from you. It's because people want to look good, but you don't get the comfort that is promised in Scripture unless you're willing to let it all hang out. And the only way you're going to let it all hang out is if you know the Lord has accepted you and you're really growing in that grace of Christ has really forgiven all my sins. He has really made me holy in the Father's sight through his blood. I'm really safe and secure there. Then who cares if this strange person I've never met before looked at me cross-eyed when I told them that I have a struggle that they find offensive. I bet if we spent enough time together, I could find something in them that I found offensive too. This is the way of the world. Are we going to actually live this way or are we going to go performing? Like let's pretend we're all together and doing really well and then go home and yell at each other. I don't want to live like that anymore. I can't live like that anymore. The psalmist couldn't live like that. Psalm 116, I love the Lord because he's heard my voice and my pleas for mercy because he identified his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. We are called to pray. This is not an option. This is not a a ministry of the church like helping the homeless people or, or painting the building next Saturday or any number of things we could do. This is our life together. And if a church wants to be a healthy church, if you're ever curious if you and I are healthy as a congregation or healthy as a group or healthy as an individual, one of the telltale signs is how much do we pray? Because in prayer, you discover, as Paul has mentioned a couple of times today, whether or not you're depending on your own strength or whether or not you really are looking to God. And it will only glorify God what you and I are doing if people around us know we're depending on him. Hence, Paul's gonna come up in front of everybody and say, I'm not all there. I'm broken. I'm discouraged. I'm struggling with sin. I feel lonely. People abandoned me. That jerk Alexander hurt me. I mean, all this stuff's out there for everybody to see. But what about propriety, Pastor Chuck? Well, talk to Paul. I didn't write two-thirds of the New Testament. This guy's living life right out in front of everybody because he's secure in Christ And then he says, follow me as I follow Christ. Are we going to do that? We are called to pray. It is a means of grace. And what I mean by a means of grace is it is one of the ways that if you want to see God do something in your life, he has ordained it from the beginning of time that that would be the means. In other words, as he would say in James 4 2, the apostle James, you don't pray, you don't get. You say, well, how do we, how do we, reconcile that with the sovereignty of God and his grace. Well, friends, if you're driving down the 210 and you want to get on Allen Avenue, you got to get off the exit. You got to exit. It's a means to get to Allen. It's a means to get to Hill, the big sign, get off the 210. You can say, well, God will get me off the 210. Just keep driving. But he's not going to. You've actually got to take the exit. And God has said, hey, do you have problems in your life? Are you sick? Are you struggling? Are you, are, are you embarrassed? Are you, are, you, are you worried? Are you afraid? Do you need money? Does your church need help? Do you need leaders? Then you're supposed to bring all this to him. And if you don't, then you can't expect that he's going to answer that prayer. 
He has promised us that he will. Sam Storms has written this amazing commentary on 2 Corinthians that Brooks and I are using his devotional life together as friends. And he says this. Simply put, we must never presume that God will grant us, apart from prayer, what he has ordained to grant us only by means of prayer. We may not have the theological wisdom to fully decipher how prayer functions in relation to God's will, but we must never cast it aside on the arrogant and unbiblical assumption that, is, that it is ultimately irrelevant to God's purpose for us and others. Here's the bottom line. If we don't ask, God doesn't give. And if God doesn't give, people don't receive. And if people don't receive, God won't be thanked. One of my best friends in the world is a young man. He's a little younger than me, but he's not that much younger than me, so I call him young man. His name is Emmett Reed. Emmett is six foot five on a good day, 280. But he's a large football playing of a guy. He's a man's man. And he is the head of an association in Florida and is ultra successful. And uh, he is a dear friend. He was an elder at the church that I planted in Florida. A tremendous resource for me in terms of uh, questions about leadership and organizational things. But more than that, he and I have become friends because six years ago, he called me on the phone, and a man that I think is as incredible a man as I know began to tell me about how he had had a breakdown too, and I mean months before I did. And as he listened compassionately and then said, let's pray on the phone together, I said, okay. And he prayed for me, and as he started to pray, he started to cry. This was really comforting because I was crying on, at watching commercials on TV. I mean, I was like, oh, I want my children to love me. I mean, it was, it was a mess. And nothing threatens your masculinity quite like bawling over TV commercials. And so you, it was just comforting that this enormous bear of a man, a man's man, was crying with me on the phone. And it turned me around. It made me say, I'm not alone. It made me say, even the strongest of men in the world have these moments it changed my life. It entered me into a new dimension of friendship with him and my brother Kurt that wouldn't have been possible if they hadn't been willing to confess their weakness to me and then lead me to the power of praying to see God do something about it. Let us pray together right now that our church, by God's grace, would be that kind of safe place. Let's pray. Father, we can only petition you. Your word has told us, though, that, it's, that the prayers of people that are righteous, people who desire you, that they're powerful because you activate your will through them. So we come to the exit ramp, Lord, and we're praying and we're saying, is it possible that you could actually create a community of believers where our understanding of how right we are in you is so strong that we could let it all hang out with each other? And then as a result of letting it all hang out with each other, find ourselves desiring to love you more and actually loving you more? Oh, Father, would it be? Grant your grace, Lord. We desperately need you. And we thank you that you've given us the church as a practical means of experiencing you. Let your spirit live here.
we pray in Jesus' name.